Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 74. Last week, I covered the first part of Genesis Chapter 50 and went into sufficient depth on Egyptian funerary practices. This was probably the best place to get into these practices, since it seems this is how the burial of Jacob was handled, at least initially. This week, I'm summarizing the last bit of Genesis 50, and then providing a summary of the entire book, well, the first half of it. The remaining portion will be wrapped up next week. So let's get started. Beginning in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, this part of the text is either humorous or dumbfounding, probably depending on the inflection of the reader. From the text, realizing that their father was dead, and I'm going to pause again and just let that simmer, especially since it took 40 days for Jacob to be embalmed, then either 30 or 70 more days of mourning, then the trip from Canaan back to Egypt, which most likely took weeks, and they are just now realizing their father was dead. Maybe it took that time to sink in, or it's a literary device. Either way, back to the story. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Pause again. Note that his brothers said, Your father, not our father. Moving along. From the text, Your father gave this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now therefore, please forgive the crime of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people, as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. End quote. And of course, there is a natural comparison of this passage to the short speech he gave them in chapter 45, when he first revealed himself to them. I'm not going to circle back, but if you have a little time to spare, and of course if you are interested, then read the two side by side. I'm avoiding it because it has huge theological implications. Maybe you should read it and interpret it on your own for the same reason. Moving along. The next section, and the last part of the chapter and book, focus on Joseph's last days and death. In summary, some time passes during which certainly many events occurred, but the text is silent. The seven-year famine no doubt came to an end, but Joseph's brothers remained in Goshen after the end of the famine and without explanation. And when the text picks up, it's at the point where he's nearing death. We're told of how he lived to be 110 years old. Also, he saw three generations of Ephraim's children, and Manasseh's grandkids were apparently born on his knee. No doubt not literally true, but a metaphor that he knew them as infants, 
and was probably close to at least this part of his family. And apparently, Joseph was outlived by at least two of his brothers, as the text reads. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. End quote. And interestingly, the brothers are not named, and we're not even told what happened to his favorite brother, Benjamin. Finally, Joseph made the Israelites swear, saying, When God comes to you, you shall carry up my bones from here. Almost the same promise he made to his father. Almost. And then Joseph died, being 110 years old, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Probably the same process used for Jacob, and therefore the mummification process I covered last week. And that's the end of Genesis. But before this episode ends, I'll at least begin a short summary of the book and work through the first half. Why a summary? Well, after all, I spent 74 episodes covering the history of the people, places, and concepts found in the book. That's almost a year and a half of weekly episodes and an estimated, well, let's just say in excess of 200,000 words. When I started, I did not expect it would take this long. But granted, I knew it was laying the foundation for the rest of the Bible, which itself contains history in excess of 2,000 years, and another 2,000 years that come after it. But even knowing this, I did not conceive the depth that some of the topics would require. And I realized I had previously summarized the individual chapters as I pressed through the text. But I've never tied it all together. So over the next two episodes or so, I'll do just that. To many, this may be a bit redundant. But please know that some listeners are hearing the full narrative of Genesis for the very first time. And with that said, a summary. Genesis begins with a very, very short introduction, and then the creation story. Well, actually, the two creation stories. The first is essentially from God's perspective, and the other from man's. These stories are the first chapter and a half of the book. Next, there's the story of Adam, and of course Eve, beginning with their creation. Well... Adam's is in both creation stories, and Eve's can be found in chapter 2. Original sin is originally committed in chapter 3, along with the first man and woman being driven from Eden. Chapter 4 has Cain murdering Abel, and also the accounts of Cain and his children. And these are generally seen as the beginning of civilization. At the end of this chapter, we learn of Adam's third son, Seth. And the last verse in that chapter cannot be understated. When Seth's son Enoch was born, at that time people began to invoke the name of the Lord. To me it sounds like the beginning of worship. Chapter 5 serves as a waypoint, tracing the generations between Adam and Noah, and ends with the birth of Noah's three sons. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 cover the reasons for the great flood, the ark, the trials of the flood, and God's promise to Noah. The covenant between God and Noah continues through the first part of chapter 9. Also in this chapter is a single verse that allows capital punishment. You can debate that concept on your own. Too theological for this podcast. 
At the end of the chapter, Noah gets drunk on wine and curses the descendants of his son Ham's son Canaan, specifically that the children of Canaan will become slaves to both Shem and Japheth's offspring. Foreshadowing so obvious, it's not really foreshadowing. Chapter 10 is another waypoint, this time tracing Noah's descendants as they are scattered across the globe. In this chapter, which is sometimes coupled with the second and third parts of chapter 11, has become known as the Table of Nations. Embedded in here, according to the Old Testament, are the beginnings of all cultures and societies found on our tiny blue marble. Which brings us to chapter 11, in the curious, and curiously short story of Babel. Nine verses to explain how the world came to have so many different languages and cultures. The chapter picks up again with the sons of Shem, who begats Arphaxad, who begats Shelah, who begats Elva, who begats Peleg, who begats Ru, who begats Sarug, who begats Nahor, who begats Terah, and Terah, of course, is the father of Abraham. All of this in chapter 11. And now we're getting somewhere. Chapter 12 introduces us to Abram and Sarai, later to be better known as Abraham and Sarah. In chapter 12, they leave Haran and travel to Egypt by way of Canaan, taking Abraham's nephew Lot along with them, and all of this due to a famine. Yes, just like we will see several times in Genesis. Abraham has a run-in with Pharaoh, who sends them all on their way. In chapter 13, the three of them, meaning Abram, Sarai, and Lot, return from Egypt, and Lot finally departs from his uncle's household. At the end of chapter 13, God promises Abram and his descendants all of the land he can see from his home in Canaan. Then, in chapter 14, there is a war in Canaan fought amongst several kings, with the most well-known being Shedoliomer. During the conflict, Lot is captured. Upon learning of this, Abram organizes a rescue party and manages to free his nephew. And in doing so, the king of Sodom thought he was indebted to Abram and offered to pay him handsomely. But Abram refused to profit from the endeavor and returned home. In Genesis chapter 15, God once again speaks to Abram and this time promises the still childless Abram many offspring, more numerous than the stars in the sky. But then, the plot gets worse when God tells Abram that his offspring will end up as aliens in a foreign land and will ultimately be slaves for 400 years. God, though, does not tell Abram where this is. But he does give him some hope, saying that when his descendants do emerge from bondage, they will be wealthy and re-inhabit his homeland of Canaan. And at the end of the chapter, God again promises Abram a great territory, this time delineating it from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 16. And this is the part in the narrative when Abram and Hagar get together and, um, get to know each other. 
and then Hagar runs away. After that, an angel appears to her and tells her to return to Sarai, and therefore Abram. He also tells her that she is pregnant with a son, and that her offspring will be more numerous than can be counted. At the end of the chapter, Ishmael is born. Chapter 17 occurs 13 years after the end of chapter 16. At the beginning of the chapter, God appears to Abram again, and this is the point where he is renamed Abraham. Also, in their conversation, God once again promises Abraham the land where he now lives. He also renews his promise of offspring, making it clear that the now-named Sarah will bear these through a yet-to-be-born son, who will be named Isaac. In exchange, God does require that the males in Abraham's household participate in um, a little body modification as a sign of the covenant. Chapter 18 has three men appearing to Abraham, while at the same time the text reads that the Lord appeared to Abraham. Think about the implications of that for a moment. And then the text alternates between the singular and the plural, and has the three men speaking seemingly and almost completely in unison. All sorts of theological implications. Once again, a son born by Sarah is promised. The three men depart and indicate that they will be going to Sodom. But before they do, they tell Abraham of their plan to destroy the city. And then Abraham sets to trying to change their mind, intentionally both plural and singular, curiously bargaining with God over how many righteous people need to be found in Sodom to alter the forthcoming judgment. Of course, Abraham was concerned for his nephew Lot, who was a resident of the city. Which brings me to chapter 19, which is mostly about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot and his family are spared, but not everyone in his household survives the trip to Zor. The last part of the chapter concerns the origin of Lot's children and grandchildren, one and the same, named Moab and Ben-Ami. Next is chapter 20. In this chapter, Abraham and Sarah leave Canaan and begin to reside in Gerar. Once again, Abraham attempts to pass Sarah off as his sister, just as he had earlier in Egypt, but nothing becomes of it. Well, except that King Abilamech got a visit and a warning from God. Abilamech then gives Abraham livestock and slaves and 1,000 pieces of silver as well as his choice of land to settle on. And unlike his dealings with Sodom, the text does not say that Abraham refused the gifts. Abraham then prays for Abilamech's wife and female slaves, and with that, their fertility is returned to them. Which gets me to chapter 21. Finally, Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 years old. Then one day, Sarah sees Ishmael playing with Isaac and doesn't like it. She asks Abraham to send Hagar and Ishmael packing. Now, Abraham didn't want to do this to his own flesh and blood. But God came to Abraham again, and this time told him to listen to his wife. Then we're enlightened as to what happens to Ishmael, all because God was with him. As he matured, he lived in the wilderness of Paran and became an expert with the bow. When he was old enough, his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. 
Which brings me back to King Abimelech. At the end of chapter 21, Abraham has a dispute with some of the local Philistines about a well. And well, I'm sure that sort of thing was relatively common in Beersheba, since it's in the Negev desert. Anyway, Abraham and Abimelech reach an agreement that the well did belong to Abraham. Keep that in the back of your minds for a few minutes. And next, of course, is chapter 22. It is in this chapter that God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, obviously distressing Abraham. But at the last second, an angel intervenes and tells Abraham that he doesn't have to sacrifice his son, but because he was willing to do so, he will have many offspring. Also, Abraham finds a ram entangled near the altar and sacrifices it to God. At the end of the chapter, we are presented with a list of Abraham's nephews and, curiously, one niece named Rebekah. Chapter 23 recounts Sarah's death at age 127. And then there is a lengthy dialogue between Abraham and the Hittites concerning a burial place. Dialogue so complete that it consumes the entire chapter. And at this point in the narrative, it seems like too much detail. But the reasons for the thorough recounting will become evident towards the end of Genesis. Chapter 24 is the narrative of Isaac marrying his cousin Rebekah. Actually, the story is 67 verses long, and the circumstances of how they meet take up 66 of those verses. Their marriage is described in the last verse. Now you may be asking, why do I mention this? Well, this chapter, in the terms of verse count, is the longest in the entire book of Genesis. In fact, it's longer than both creation stories combined. And there are less than a handful of chapters in the entire Old Testament that are longer, none in the Pentateuch. And that's important. Why? Well, as we will learn later, their marriage is the formation of the House of Israel. Moving along. Chapter 25 details how the widower Abraham marries Keturah and has several more sons. Despite this, he gives everything he has, save a few gifts, to Isaac. He then sends his other sons off, away from Isaac, just as he had with Ishmael. Then, at the age of 175, he dies. Note that at this time, Isaac would have been 75 or so years old. Both Isaac and Ishmael bury their father, and this is a bit surprising as Ishmael had many years before been sent away. The next paragraph is devoted to listing the sons. We are then told that Ishmael dies and his sons settle from Hevelah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. The second half of the chapter describes the birth of Isaac's sons Esau and Jacob twins that got along so well that they were even fighting while in their mother, Rebekah's, womb. The last paragraph in the chapter details how Esau, since he was the oldest, he was destined to inherit everything. But he sells this birthright to his minutes younger brother for some stew. Stew meaning as in a bowl of soup. Now granted, he also got some bread and some unspecified drink. And Jacob, well, he got everything else. Which brings me to chapter 26. 
which also brings another famine to Canaan. God warned Isaac not to go to Egypt, and he listened, instead taking his family to Gerar, to live amongst the Philistines. When he gets there, he meets with King Abilamech, presumably the same Abilamech his father had met with in chapter 20. Now remember that when Abraham was there, Isaac had not yet been born, and Isaac was 75 when his father died. Now, if we assume that this second visit to Abilamech was after Abraham's death, which seems like a safe assumption since it occurs later in the narrative and there is no mention of Abraham making the trip. Anyway, this would mean that King Abilamech had been on the throne for at least 75 years. Quite a reign, especially for a desert kingdom. And, like father like son, Isaac claims that Rebekah is his sister and also like father like son, he gets in a dispute with the locals about his wells. And he has essentially the same conversations with the king that his father had had some decades before. Now King Abilamech had to be thinking that it was deja vu all over again. And had I been in the king's shoes, well, probably sandals, I would have told Esau not to try the same thing. Not that it would have done any good, as Esau was getting nothing anyway. At the end of the chapter, Esau takes two wives, who both make life difficult for both Isaac and Rebekah. Chapter 27 is where Isaac, due both to his failing eyesight and a bit of trickery, blesses Jacob when he thinks he's blessing Esau. And in doing so, Jacob is to inherit his father's wealth. Of course, Esau is upset by this, apparently either not remembering or purposely not living up to the stewing due he had made some time before with his slightly younger brother. At the end of the chapter, Esau plots to kill Jacob. He's just waiting on his father to die. Rebekah hears of this and sends Jacob packing, at least until Esau cools off. She sends her favorite son to her brother Laban, who lives in Haran but she worries that her son will marry a Hittite woman while he's there. Chapter 28 tells us of how Isaac intervened and asked, well told, Jacob not to marry a Canaanite woman, which was a bit broader of a restriction than his mother had asked for. Isaac then tells Jacob to leave at once and to go as his mother had instructed. He also charges his son with marrying a daughter of his maternal uncle Laban. In the meantime, Esau takes another wife, this one being one of Ishmael's daughters. Back to Jacob. On his way to Haran, and therefore to his extended family, he has a dream. In his dream, he envisions angels climbing and descending a ladder that extends from heaven to earth. Still dreaming, God stands beside him and essentially extends the same blessing he had bestowed on Abraham. And when Jacob awakes, he promises to honor God. And that's probably a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll summarize the remainder of Genesis and set the stage for the book of Exodus. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, 
or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.